0: I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to continue this series that we began two weeks ago. I entitled it, Identifying and Cultivating Maturity. And really, the the goal of this time together is essentially to summarize in four weeks what I am taking this entire semester with the teens to unpack, where I am exhorting them in each of these areas of maturity to press on to maturity, to, to strive Uh, laying aside the immaturities that naturally encumber us, that are natural to us, and to strive certainly in spiritual maturity, and also uh, five other key areas of maturity. It's all flowed out of a question and answer time we had at the end of last semester with uh, myself and Pastor Mark and the teens and parents, and uh, that's how I'm uh, wanting to end this semester with the teens on Wednesday night as well. And since Pastor Mark is out of town, this time we have Pastor Eric coming in to uh, join with our Q&A um, concluding this semester. That'll be for the teens and parents for you to know that is on uh, May 10th on Wednesday night. So looking forward to uh, just this study. And this evening, what I want to do first of all is round out where we looked last time together. Uh, the the goal in that first uh, time looking at maturity together was to really present the biblical goal of maturity. Think about what we spent a lot of time on with Solomon in the Proverbs. This is his goal for his sons, that they would be biblically wise, that they would be mature. And this is Paul's goal in all of his ministry, to proclaim Christ so that every man would be mature in Christ. This is uh, Christ's purpose in giving pastor teachers to a church for the equipping of the saints, for the building up of the body of Christ so that we had all attain to the stature, the, the mature stature of Christ and to be mature in our faith. So spiritual maturity must remain central as the goal in our lives, the goal in our parenting, the goal in our discipleship. How do we identify spiritual maturity? So let me just give you a roadmap. I want to close out my focus on spiritual maturity, and that was really our whole focus last time. And I want to briefly look at identifying and cultivating spiritual maturity. And then I want us to get into two more areas of maturity this evening, that of physical maturity and intellectual maturity. So I have a lot to cover. Let's consider the question, how do we identify spiritual maturity? What are you looking for to identify spiritual maturity in someone's life? Uh, Just to summarize it, you are looking for evidence of the Spirit of God in their lives. You're looking for what only the Spirit can produce in someone's life. It would be an error to identify spiritual maturity by looking at externals that someone could do without the Spirit in their life. What do I mean by that? Things like, Regular church attendance. Things that are wonderful. Let me give you this list here that I have and emphasize at the beginning. These are good things. We do want to see these in our own lives and those that we're discipling, but these alone are not the essence of spiritual maturity. Regular church attendance, actively serving in the church, regular Bible reading, attentive sermon listening, compassion for hurting people, visible morality, A profession of knowing Christ, even teaching others the scripture, an initial and passionate response to the gospel message, a desire not to go to hell, uh, being able to confess one's sin or shortcomings, or even religious uh, religious accomplishments. I mean, that is uh, Philippians 3, where Paul just gives his spiritual pedigree. Here's all the things I did. And he ultimately says all these religious accomplishments were as rubbish compared to knowing Christ. So if that's not what we're looking for is these externals that certainly we want those to all be present. Let me emphasize that. But what is it that we're looking for to assess? Is this person spiritually mature? So. Introspectively, you'd say, What am I looking for to identify spiritual maturity in my own life? Or as a parent or a disciple, what am I looking for to assess someone's spiritual maturity? I just want to give you three things here. Actually, I have five. Let me give you five things here. I say that because uh, I shortened this from a list of 15 things that I gave to the teens. So we're going for just five of those. Just quickly. A life that testifies to the Lordship of Christ. What do I mean by that? 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, Paul speaks of an evidence that the Holy Spirit is active in someone's life, and he says, therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not going to spend much time on this verse, but he is not saying someone cannot verbalize these words. They can't possibly articulate the words, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. That's not what he's saying. It's not as though if they can communicate these words, that is evidence of the Spirit of God at work in their life. He is rather speaking of to the life that testifies to these things. If someone's life bears testimony that Jesus is accursed, It is a demonstration that individual does not have the Spirit of God in their life. And if someone's life testifies, Christ is Lord, He is my Master, I am bowing before Him in my thoughts, and my actions, and my words, this is a testimony that the Spirit of God is active in their inner life. The life testifying Jesus is Lord is definitive evidence that the Spirit of God is actively at work in this person. A second evidence would be an appetite to apply the truth. An appetite to apply the truth. I would take this from Hebrews 5.14, where uh, the author of Hebrews is pointing to maturity. And he says of the mature, they, they want to apply their theology. He says, who because of practice, they have their senses trained to discern good and evil. They are practicing and training to apply the truth in biblical discernment. The spiritually mature will want a greater and greater depth. Uh, they, They don't merely want to increase in a head knowledge. Rather, they want to be able to practice the truth. And because of training, this ongoing repetition of not merely memorizing the verse, but in the moment of temptation... Being able to apply that truth so that they respond in obedience rather than in unbelief and disobedience. This is evidence of the Spirit of God at work in someone's life when they have an appetite not just to hear the truth, but to apply it, to have clear discernment, to be able to obey the Lord in the moment of temptation. This would be evidenced in the third area. You could jot down Romans 8 verse 13 and 14. we looked at recently This is an act of putting to death the deeds of the body you'd examine this are you in a relationship with your sin against god or in a relationship with god against your sin this is the evidence that the spirit of god is at work in someone's life because by the spirit they're putting to death the deeds of sin what is natural to them it's evidence of god's spirit at work in them Number four, they have affections for Christ, not for the world. You can see this in 1 Peter 1, 1.8. Peter says of these believers that are suffering in the midst of affliction, they're rejoicing even though they're suffering. That would be another evidence. But I, I want to highlight here, he says in 1 Peter 1, 1.8, You love Christ even though you haven't seen him. And you believe him and you greatly rejoice. These believers, suffering for the sake of the gospel, and yet they endure, they rejoice in the midst of these afflictions because they know God is producing something in them, a a steadfastness, the spiritual maturity, and they're so thrilled by God's work of producing maturity in them that they rejoice, they love Christ, even though they have not seen him, they believe him, they walk by faith. They they love Christ and not this world. You would look at the contrary in 1 John 2 15. Do not love the world. And he goes on to say what love of the world identifies about someone's heart. Lastly, I would just add to the list a, a visible love for the church is an evidence of the Spirit of God at work in someone's life. Not just a, a love to be at the church. Um, certainly there are relationships and things here that someone could love to be a part of even without the spirit of god but the evidence of the spirit of god in someone's life in first peter 1 is that they have a fervent stretching love for the church they they love the church so diligently even though it costs them greatly they're still pouring out themselves in love and service for the body now this list could keep going much much longer I just want to remind you, if you want to be useful in contributing to spiritual maturity, there are two things I I want you to keep in mind in in cultivating spiritual maturity in someone's life. The first is the tool that God has given us to accomplish spiritual maturity is his word. It is the word of God that the the God-breathed scripture that is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. Righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16. It is the word of God in verse 17 that that equips the man of God, that makes him adequate and equipped for every good work. So if you are seeking to identify the work of the Spirit of God in one's life, look for these evidences. And if you're seeking to cultivate uh, spiritual maturity, you are to do so by means of the word of God. Lastly, I would just urge you, as you're ministering the Word of God and, uh, to your children, to those that you're discipling, I want to urge you to apply the Word of God to their hearts and not merely to external problems. You're not seeking for mere external conformity to uh, a certain level of external standards of, of, oh, don't say that word, of oh, don't do this, don't, don't say those things, don't go to these places. Rather, we want to apply the Word of God to the heart. Teach them how you have identified sin in your own heart. Show them the truths of God's Word that you had to hide in your heart, rehearse over and over, training your heart in righteousness, in the truth, and how you yielded in faith in the moment of temptation, how you've grown in, in victory over that sin. This is how you and I will be most useful in identifying and cultivating spiritual maturity. Now, this is a brief look at spiritual maturity. Really, we could spend the entire month and far beyond, because remember, it is the scripture that's profitable for this. So we could go on and on with this topic. But I want us to take uh, these last three Sunday evenings in the month of April to focus on these five other areas of maturity. I came out of this Q&A with Pastor Mark. These are the other areas: physical maturity, intellectual maturity, social maturity, emotional maturity, and lastly, financial maturity. Now, let me again reiterate, spiritual maturity is our overarching goal in everything, so as I am highlighting These other areas of maturity that we want to identify and cultivate specifically in our children, our young people that we are raising and and training and instructing in the truth. Certainly, spiritual maturity is our primary goal. We want to see the Spirit of God active in their lives. But there is a danger in only emphasizing spiritual aspects and neglecting anything physical. As though the scripture is not practical and applicable to every area of our lives. Neglecting to train your children in these areas, uh, in other categories of maturity such as these, will develop a theology that is separate from real life. Will develop an unhelpful separation between physical matters and spiritual matters. You might just think this problem would be illustrated by a young person who should be able to integrate into adulthood and have the ability to care for their own physical body and utilize their intellect at whatever capacity they're able, to interact well with adults and even even younger children in social situations without acting like those children, to uh, remain in control of their own emotions with all the pressures of life pressing in on them, to not be controlled by their feelings, but think soberly in the moment and to be able to manage their finances well, however much or little they may have. It, just imagine a, in someone maturing into adulthood who has no abilities in these areas, but they can rehearse the, the Bible stories that they learned. Uh, certainly, again... Spiritual maturity is central. It is the primary goal that we would lead our children to a knowledge of the truth, that we would pray for the Lord to regenerate their hearts. But we must also consider these other areas and how to apply the truth in each of these areas of development in our our children's lives. This highlights the necessity for us to consider a full picture of maturity. Specifically, and I'm thinking of this in the context of youth ministry, uh, we want uh, children to become adults who are, who are demonstrating maturity in each of these areas. So this is why the rest of this evening we're going to turn our attention to physical and intellectual maturity. Now, I have to admit, when I was going into these topics with the teens This is a a bit intimidating for me as as a teacher of the Bible, as a pastor. Why? Because what is comfortable for me, what I was trained to do in seminary, is to open the scripture to a passage and to uh, identify the author's main point and just to walk through that passage, to exposit one pericope, one unit of thought. That's comfortable. That's what I was taught to do. And it's much more difficult to take a category, an idea, a theme, and to try to uh, pull from all of God's revelation, from all of the scripture, and to develop our thinking in that one area. So I'm just, just letting you know the thought behind this. It's, it's much more difficult and intimidating to tackle a topic like physical maturity for me rather than just telling you to open to Hebrews. And let me teach you the next passage there. So I did what uh, every young man should do in this setting. I asked Pastor Mark what to do, (laughs) and uh, I asked him, how do you consider examining these topics and these categories of maturity in your own teens' lives, and uh, what are you looking for to cultivate in others? And uh, as we looked at this topic of physical maturity, his response was focusing on exercising wisdom in your physical development and an emphasis on the proper use of strength. So there, I want you to think about that. The two terms he gave me to focus on were wisdom and strength. Let me give you a, a few references here. Just, you don't have to turn there, but consider First Samuel 2.26. This is speaking of San, Samuel growing up under Eli's ministry. And we read of him, now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor, both with the Lord and with man. This is describing his life as he's growing into this Incredible role as a prophet in Israel. He is growing in stature, his physical form, and he's growing in favor with the Lord and with men. Certainly, you're probably already thinking of Luke chapter 2 as as Christ, Jesus uh, in human flesh, as God the Son stepped into humanity and took on a physical body like us. This is said of him in Luke 2.40. The child continued to grow and to become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And a few verses later, Luke 2.52, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. These two terms are the essence of what we're looking at tonight, physical and intellectual maturity. You have it right there in that verse, wisdom and stature. So we are striving to identify and cultivate in our young people. So how do we set our young people on the path to not only increase in physical stature and intellect, but to do so in a way that it also includes this other category of in favor with God and men. How do we help them mature in these areas in a way that honors the Lord? So if we're talking about... Uh, developing in physical maturity in a very worldly sense just keep feeding them they will keep growing in stature they'll keep getting bigger that's not the goal merely is to uh, get them to into adulthood in a adult-sized body what i've sought to teach the teens in this series is understanding the stewardship of their bodies there's a common danger as we're speaking of our physical bodies and, and the things that pertain to them. There's the danger of overemphasizing the body or utter neglect of your physical body. And we can sanctify both of these preferences. So the body worshiper devotes themselves to making their body a spectacle of human achievement for all to marvel upon. And this individual... They will sanctify their preference, their love of their body. They might go to a place like First Corinthians 6.19 and declare, my body is a beautiful temple of the Holy Spirit. And uh, and they will subtly or not so subtly sanctify that desire to, uh, to ultimately worship themselves by how they treat their body. Now, the opposite side of this would be the person who utterly neglects the care of their body entirely. They they sanctify the neglect of their body by also importing their theology and, and identifying 1 Corinthians 15 or 2 Corinthians 5.1. This, this body we have now, this is an earthly tent. It's going to be torn down, but we're going to receive a building from God, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We're going to receive a heavenly body. This current one, it's perishable. You know I'm not taking it with me when I go, so no, no point in trying to invest in it here. I just want to say either of these perspectives is going to keep us from ultimately utilizing our bodies as a stewardship from the Lord. The proper perspective biblically when it comes to our physical bodies is summed up in these two words, balance and moderation. Balance and moderation. Do not worship your body and do not utterly neglect it. Look with me at Psalm 139 just want to point out a few verses here of how David speaks of his body. In Psalm 139, verse 13 and 14, David says, For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. And notice his response, because God is the one who fashioned his body, I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. He's highlighting the truth that our bodies were formed by God. He gave you this body as a dwelling place for your soul we would be unwise to separate our body from soul in the sense of thinking that whatever we do physically with the body does not have anything to do with our souls with our spiritual life and that is not the case it would be in danger to put the two at odds against each other we we're right to acknowledge this this uh, earthly body is not forever but we should also acknowledge god gave it to us for his purpose Why did you receive the body that you receive, the body that you have? Certainly most of us would have chosen some different physical or intellectual features if we had input in how God formed us. You may have said, I would like this metabolism, I would like this height, I would like this ability to have a photographic memory and remember anything I've ever set my mind on. We should remember that our sovereign God gave us the exact body we needed to fulfill his perfect purposes. I would take this truth from John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, there's a, a man who was born blind. And there is debate over whether it was because of his sin or someone else's. And what did Christ say in John 9, 3? It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. God gave this man this body, not because of any certain individual's sin. It was rather so that God might demonstrate his power through his life. And we could rightly assess the same about our own lives. God gave us the exact body he did for his perfect purposes. With whatever weaknesses and strengths you and I may have in our physical bodies, the Lord is the one who gave it to us, knowing those full well. Listen to author Tim Chalice. He says, your body is not worthless packaging to use and discard, but a valuable creation to nurture and protect. God tells you to take responsibility for your body by presenting it to him, then stewarding, nurturing, employing, and guarding it. I like how he uses the language of stewardship. And certainly think of a familiar verse, as he says, presenting your bodies to God—that would come from Romans twelve one. This this response to the overwhelming mercies of God in salvation is not merely that we offer only something spiritual; we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. This is describing the not just that we are worshiping God internally, but we are using our our physical bodies as an expression of our worship to God. We need to be faithful stewards of our bodies and teach our young people about stewarding their bodies well. Just think about Paul in 1 Timothy 4.7. It's a familiar verse. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Listen to what he says about bodily discipline. In 1 Timothy 4.8. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. That is, in essence, my point here. Spiritual maturity is, is supreme. It's the priority. But we should not neglect physical. Why? Bodily discipline is only of little profit. He could have said, it's entirely pointless. Don't waste any time caring for your physical body. It's of no value If you rightly fleshed out all the implications here, godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Well, that would indicate that bodily discipline is profitable for the present life. Maybe not for the life to come, but there is benefit for us here and now. Let me give you a few areas that I gave to the teens for them to consider in their physical maturity and for uh, for for those of us who are discipling and, and raising children, these are areas that you want to help them consider in stewarding their bodies. The first one is that of eating. Jerry Bridges makes this comment on overeating. He says, the person who overindulges his body at this point will find it more and more difficult to mortify other sinful deeds of the body. The habit of always giving in to the desires for food or drink will extend to other areas. What is he saying? Someone who has no self control in the area of eating is not just going to be able to contain that lack of discipline to that one area. It is going to be pervasive in their lives. And Tim Chally says food is a great gift, but it makes a terrible god. I do appreciate that. It's well said. The Lord has given us so many. Wonderful gifts to enjoy. And even think of the exhortations that we can eat and drink to the glory of God. What a blessing. There's delicious food that you and I can enjoy. We need to do so with balance and moderation, exercising wisdom. Another area that uh, brought up to the teens is the area of strength. Pastor Mark said on this topic, I would seek to talk about strength and the proper use of strength. Just consider Proverbs 20, verse 29. We'll turn over there to Solomon's exhortation in Proverbs 20, verse 29. It says, The glory of young men is their strength and the honor of old men is their gray hair what is he saying each stage of life has strengths and weaknesses and the point that solomon is making here is that young men are to be strong it is what characterizes them in this season of life it is their advantage in this season it is their the word he uses there for glory it is it is their adornment you can say it is, it is what they are known for. It is, it is their strength, their advantage, their adornment. Saying here the gray hair, gray hair of old men is not to highlight their age. It is rather to highlight their wisdom. He's saying the, the strength of an old man comes in his wisdom. The splendor, the, the, the value, the benefit is that he, is, he, he has lived enough life to acquire this profound wisdom. But the young man, what has God given him in full? The physical strength. As young people need to understand the proper use of their strength. God has indeed given young people. If you have a teenager, you know they have a lot of energy, a, a lot of strength and a lot of energy. The, the question is, is how is that energy being directed? How are they using it? It is so sad to see that most teens use their increased strength and energy to maximize serving themselves. We, we need to help them assess. Are you stewarding your strength and energy to bless others? When there's work to be done, are you eager to meet the need? Do we use our strength and energy that the Lord has given you so abundantly in these teen years for serving yourselves, for winning sports games, for playing with friends, for serving your own desires? Or do you steward this strength and energy to serve others? Do you see the blessing of God in your life in this season as an opportunity for you in turn to bless others? It would be a proper use of strength. Our culture misuses physical strength. We use it to elevate our own position, to achieve our own desires, to make a name for ourselves, to uh, to belittle our opponents. That is ultimately the heart of, of Darwinism, a heart of unbelief, the survival of the fittest. I'm the strongest, so I'm going to win and all of you will lose. It's the unbelieving perspective. And the proper biblical perspective is that God would give strength and energy as a gift so that they could be stewarded ultimately for the blessing of God's people. This is what teens need to understand about God giving them strength in this season of life, is using that strength as a stewardship to serve those in their family, to serve those around them. And with this strength and energy comes the topic of work. As teens are growing, they need to have a proper understanding of work. This is so crucial. I've been trying to develop this conviction, this understanding of work, even in my children at a very young age. When I'm speaking of the concept of work, I'm not merely speaking of the concept of earning money, but rather the the concept of using our gifts, using our strength, using our ability to contribute, to produce something, to accomplish something. Just want to remind you when work came into creation and it was not in genesis 3 after the fall now work got more difficult at that point as now the work began fighting back as there's thorns and thistles fighting against adam keeping the ground but remember while everything was in perfect harmony while god looked at all of creation and says behold it is good it is very good Adam had work to do. He was to keep the garden, to cultivate it. He was to to name the, the animals, to manage God's creation. This is what God gave Adam to do before sin was ever part of the picture. So I will admit, sin does make work less enjoyable. It's absolutely true. Work will be hard at times. Work will fight back. Work will cause them to sweat and suffer a bit. Not all work is created equal. Some may work diligently all day and never break a sweat. They have an office job with air conditioner. Others may be dripping from head to toe and sweat after a day's work. And someone may be generously compensated for their work. And someone else, a, a stay-at-home mom, may work just as hard or harder with no, fizz, no monetary compensation. Yet all of these are work before the Lord. A pastor friend of mine named Whitney Oxford says this, We tend to make our work about ourselves, our reputation, our image, our identity, our survival. Work is about God. Are you working to establish your own image or to reflect God's image? God is the original worker. He's the one who has made all things. It is Christ who is sustaining all things by the word of his power. We're reflecting the image of God when we are working, and we need to instill this perspective of work into our young people. We are seeking to reflect God's design. Work is a good thing. Work is a blessing from God. It is part of physical maturity to to partake in the practice of working. Even long before someone would receive a paycheck, they need to be diligent to learn to work hard in the home, contributing to the family must learn to not despise hard work, but to love it and to rejoice whenever they are able to see the rewards of hard work in their life. I urge the young people, do not seek to avoid work at all cost. It will not benefit your life to take the easiest path and to avoid any level of work. Do not consider work to be a punishment. Now, loving parents might assign tasks as a consequence for disobedience, or uh, they might lovingly give you lots of chores. And you should not consider work itself to be a punishment. It is a good gift from God. Work leads to sweet rest. Listen to Solomon in Ecclesiastes 5.12. says, the sleep of the working man is pleasant. You may think, why does the working man sleep so well? Notice it goes on. It's not because of what he earned in his work. The it's not because of his compensation. He says, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. Now the the distinction here is not that the one who worked hard has a lot of money, so they sleep well, knowing they have all these resources and all this security. It is rather that work itself is rewarding. There is a fulfillment that comes in exercising your abilities to meet needs, to produce things, to care for the other to care for others around you. It is not merely the accumulation of possessions or acquiring a, a paycheck, but it is rather reflecting the character of God in our work. We need to instill these convictions in our young people. Lastly, on the topic of physical maturity, I I wanted to draw out the perspective of rest. As we spoke of rest being sweet for the person who is working, there is a danger in the life of young people to not have balance and moderation in the good gift of sleep. Sleep is a good gift. And I, I think it's so ironic that as a parent of young children, sleep is dreaded by children. They do not want to sleep. And then Uh, The children get older into the teen years, and then they love sleep. They don't want to do anything except sleep. And then into adulthood, we have to fight the love of sleep and just fight the the dream to have more sleep than we currently have. Listen Solomon also there in Proverbs 20 and verse 13. He says, do not love sleep or you'll become poor. Open your eyes and you'll be satisfied with food. What is the principle at hand? You must wake up and work hard. Do not love sleep. If we went back to Proverbs chapter 6, you would see uh, Solomon present the ant as an illustration. And the ant who works hard and diligent is a rebuke to the sluggard, the, the lazy person that, that says, oh, it's just a little bit of sleep, a little bit of slumber, a little folding of the hands. And he says, uh, your poverty will come in like a vagabond. And your need like an armed man. There's a danger in a love of sleep. So we need to teach our young people to be guarded from laziness and love of sleep. To exercise balance and moderation. To exercise self-control. So that they will use their bodies as a stewardship from the Lord. Let's turn to that other term. uh, Christ highlighted or highlighted of Christ in Luke 2.52 Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature. Increasing in wisdom leads us to the topic of intellectual maturity. Maturing in our intellect. And here, I just want to, from the beginning, say that we are not merely assessing how intelligent someone is. Identifying intellectual maturity is not an IQ test. This is not giving everyone an exam. Whoever made the highest grade, well, there is the most intellectually mature. That's not the case. The goal here is not to elevate mere intellect or to say the smartest person wins. It is rather to cultivate uh, in our young people to be diligent learners who not just want to increase in knowledge, but to apply that knowledge in their lives. There will be a wide range of intellectual abilities even in one family. Not all children are going to be at the same intellectual ability. So our goal here is to cultivate in our young people a love for learning and a diligence in applying themselves to the greatest of their own abilities. Again, these abilities will vary broadly in one family and certainly across an entire church like ours. There's going to be a lot of difference in intellectual ability but here, these, these principles of, uh, of identifying and cultivating intellectual maturity are, are across whatever spectrum of, of intelligence someone is able to have. We want to uh, call our young people to, to aspire to use their intellect to their greatest ability. The first exhortation I gave the young people is to acquire knowledge. If you're still in the Proverbs, flip over to Proverbs 23, verse 12. Proverbs 23, verse 12, Solomon's exhortation is to apply your heart to discipline and your ears to words of knowledge. Young people must learn to devote themselves to acquiring knowledge, having a a willingness to learn and to grow in their ability to think carefully and critically. This first command Solomon gives to apply your heart to discipline, you could really literally translate that as bring your heart in for discipline. Bring your heart in for discipline. This is uh, addressing the common temptation for us to wander in what we pay attention to, for our minds to be preoccupied with unimportant things. He is saying, call in your focus, embrace biblical instruction, Apply your heart to discipline, like bring your heart to the the table to to learn and to receive instruction is is how this call is given. We must help our young people learn to rein in their focus on what actually matters i 've seen so commonly where a young person w- would claim to have an inability to devote themselves to learning certain things, but then they demonstrate over here. They can learn sports stats very well. They can learn all of the information about their favorite TV show, their favorite video game, their favorite uh, whatever it is that, that appeals to their own desires. But they're unwilling to devote themselves to learning principles of the Scripture, to learning uh, things in school, whatever it is they're, uh, they're instructed to do. And Solomon is saying here, we must teach our children. Here's the exhortation. Apply your heart to discipline. Bring yourself up to the table to be instructed, to be corrected. Learn to love that correction. We live at a time where I believe our minds can be more preoccupied with useless things than I would say at any other time in history. Certainly, the mind is always prone to paying attention to things that are unimportant. But now with the internet at our fingertips, really, we could devote an endless amount of hours to consuming useless entertainment entertainment itself is not a problem but we do not want to teach our young people that it is okay to turn your brains off to not apply yourself just be a consumer to sit and and fill your mind with useless knowledge we must help them cultivate a heart of discipline that notice the second part he says "And your ears to the words of knowledge this idea of applying your ears to the words of knowledge would be just like you brought your heart and you set it at the table to receive discipline. Now you're bringing your ears and you're setting them here to receive words of knowledge. I heard uh, Pastor Todd Murray say one time as his children kept responding, Dad, I didn't hear you. I didn't hear you say this. He, in his wisdom, says, tune your ears to the sound of my voice. (laughs) I love that. This is the idea. You are tuning your ears, in Proverbs 23, 12, to words of knowledge. You don't just want to consume your ears with useless information that will not benefit. It is rather to devote yourself to learn what is spiritually profitable, what will benefit your own life and the lives of those around you. had much more that I wanted to devote our time to in this intellectual maturity as I spent two full weeks on it with the teens, which for our last few minutes together, I want to emphasize this growing in knowledge is not merely the idea of accumulation of facts in our brains. It is not merely the goal of of increasing in all of this common grace of God in secular academia. There is certainly much to benefit in worldly wisdom that improves the quality of life here on earth. And, we do want our children to know those things. It is good to teach them things that they are going to be able to use in life. But here, our priority for them and their, their knowledge, in their hearts, in their minds, must be Proverbs 1 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord. This is. Well, we spent a lot of time on last time we were together, so I, I don't want to rehearse it. But I want to emphasize here is we're speaking of someone's mind. The, the scripture interchanges the heart, the mind and the soul. Speaking of the immaterial part of you, the spirit, the, the non-physical body, the you that is within your physical body. And here that mind is not just to grow in earthly facts, but in knowledge of the Lord. Some exhortation to the teens was not merely to increase in intellectual activities and acquiring worldly thoughts, but, uh, but to certainly devote our minds to learning, but to do so through the filter of the truth of Scripture, that whatever we are taking in and secular wisdom and books and schooling and things around us is to be done so through a biblical worldview through the convictions of the Scripture. So we as parents want to call our children to learning, to increasing in wisdom, and importantly, having them filter everything that they're learning through their knowledge of the Scripture. Paul in Philippians 4.8 gives a, what I would call a mental menu, a mental menu of what you are to feast on in your mind. Here's what we are to dwell on in our thinking. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Indeed, the Lord has given us a a sufficient menu for our minds to be devoted to in the scripture. And so many common graces in the world that we can learn that will actually be a benefit to our lives now and a benefit to those around us. But it is the timeless truth of the Word of God that must remain central in our minds. Uh, I love how in our Kids for Truth program, there's the commitment to memorizing the Scripture, to instill these truths in young hearts so that they would not depart from them when they were older so that they would hide the word of god in their hearts so that they would learn to apply the word of god in the moment of temptation they'd learn to believe the truth and to call them to acquire knowledge went to call them to be diligent To watch over their heart with all diligence, Proverbs 4.23. For from it flow the springs of life. Guard what comes into your mind, young people. We want to set guards uh, on our, our children's minds and what they're devoting their attention to. Because, Solomon says, for from it flow the springs of life. What did Christ say? Out of the heart, out of the overflow, the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew 12, 34 and 35. And lastly, I urge the teens to be wise with their time. And, and growing in intellectual maturity, we are to strive to acquire knowledge. We are to be diligent with the tasks the Lord gives us. And we are to use our time wisely. There's, Paul in Ephesians 5 tells us how to walk in wisdom He says, by making the most of your time, by redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Use your time wisely, because the natural progress of things is not towards godliness, but towards ungodliness. That's why we must be diligent to identify and cultivate intellectual maturity in your young people so they would think God's thoughts on the matter I want my children to know if they see something in the world, here's what my dad would say about this. Here's what God says about this. I want the the flood of truth to come to their minds as they're seeing things so that they, they know how to process things. They know how to walk in wisdom. Again, this is a snapshot. I would love to devote much more time to these, but this is just to highlight the... Crucial responsibility we have as those ministering to the young hearts and minds the Lord has entrusted in us to care for and to to minister to. We want to keep spiritual maturity as the central goal, that they would know Christ. And also we want to develop in them Uh, moderation and balance as they grow in physical maturity so they understand their stewardship of using their bodies using their strength and energy as a stewardship before the lord to minister to others and we want to call them to grow in intellectual maturity make the most of their time and to be diligent in what they have before them no matter what their ability is they can strive all the more let's close in prayer Father, we thank you for the wisdom of God on display in the scripture. Indeed, you have given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through a true knowledge of Christ. You've given us such wisdom that is not merely theoretical. So thankful that the scriptures are applicable for everyday life, for real life. It is not something that is... Uh, only to be talked about in the, the ivory tower theologian but rather it is in our homes in our raising of our children in our parenting in our discipleship in our our own hearts our own lives your word is profitable in every one of these areas your word is profitable to teach us your thoughts on life to reprove us rebuke us when we are in sin and walking in unbelief to correct us not leave us down but to bring us up and to train us to walk in righteousness father we thank you for your sufficient word and for giving us all that we need to be able to faithfully parent the children to disciple the young people of our ministry thank you for your sufficient word help us to have confidence in the scripture and to be diligent in teaching and instructing our children in it. We thank you for our time together. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.